Well, friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. And today we're reading verses 14 to 21. Uh, We are in week eight of a series in the book of Acts that we've entitled To the End of the Earth. And if you're joining us for the first time or you haven't come and joined us in a while, uh, last two weeks ago we started Acts chapter 2. And there we saw the event of Pentecost when Jesus fulfilled the promise of Acts 1-4 and he sent the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. And so this week and next week, we are considering the sermon that Peter preaches at Pentecost. And so with that, wherever you are, please stand with me. Our standing is an act of worship that we receive and read God's word with a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude for he speaks to us. So hear now the reading of God's holy word from Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 14 and ending in verse 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And would you join me in prayer once more? Father, we pray that today we would hear your voice clearly as you speak to us in your scriptures. And to that end, we ask Holy Spirit that you would give us ears to hear, that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see and behold Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that even in the reading and the receiving the instruction of your word, that we do not simply think about how we can be blessed and how we are encouraged and comforted, but how even in listening, we are giving you glory and we are worshiping you. So help us, Lord, receive your word this morning in humility. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In today's passage, we read uh, about the first Christian sermon ever preached. Uh, Apostle Peter stands before a large crowd, and through the anointing of the Holy Spirit, he declares the gospel. And in this first sermon, he sets the bar high. Now, we didn't read it today, but at the end of this sermon, it says in Acts 2.41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, imagine that for a second. Peter preaches, and 3,000 people who hear the word, they hear it, they're cut to the heart, they're saved, and then they are baptized all in one day. And it really makes you marvel at this scene. I mean, the first question that comes to my mind is, how in the world do you baptize 3,000 people in one day anyway? And from that, we know then that the apostles were Presbyterians and they were sprinkling in baptism because that's the only way you could do 3,000 in one day. 
Now, all joking aside, uh, what an amazing work of God we see as he's drawing men and women to himself. Now, remember that this takes place immediately after the Spirit filled the disciples. And that's important because Peter's sermon comes after the empowerment of the Spirit. So his preaching, his sharing of the gospel is not done by his own eloquence or his own abilities, but by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit at work in and through him. The Holy Spirit is the main mover. The Holy Spirit is the persuader. The Holy Spirit is he who draws men to God, not Peter. Peter is merely the instrument. I remember the first retreat that I was invited to preach. I was uh, 23 years old. I was in my second year of seminary. And at that point in my life, I had some preaching under my belt, but was far from uh, experienced and capable to say the least. And so I remember before the sermon, during the sermon, after the sermon, I, I would be in my room on my knees, praying, desperately asking God to show up because I had no idea what I was doing. And on one of the days, I can't remember clearly, but I'm going to assume it was the last night of the retreat. There was an invitation to accept Christ. And to my surprise, when that invitation went out, about 30 students or so raised their hands. And so we took them into another room and we followed up with them about what it means to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We prayed for them and they came to faith or so, you know, that's as much as we understand it. Now, the thing is, I remember that sermon. I bombed it. You know, I didn't kill it. Like, I killed it. And that's when I knew, like, I really knew it wasn't the power of my preaching at work, but the power of the Spirit at work. You know, here's the reality. Since that retreat, it's been over 10 years, I've preached, I think, somewhere about probably 100 more times at retreats and revivals and every year since then, I've gained more experience, more insight, more ability. But I can say to you, I can admit that even though I feel and am more confident and capable now than I was 10 years ago, there has never been a retreat or a revival where I've preached with that same kind of result. Now, I could be ashamed of that, right? Did I hit my prime at 23 years old? Is the rest of my life downhill? Is, is the Andrew you're hearing today, you know, Andrew in his declining years? Well, I certainly hope not. I could be ashamed or I can be humbled at the fact that I know that it was never up to me in the first place. It was never about my eloquence and my articulation or my speaking dynamics. It was always ever only the work of God and his spirit. See, friends, it's not about the instrument. It's about the redeemer who wields the instrument in his hand. Peter's sermon at Pentecost was powerful, not because he was so powerful, but because the spirit at work in him was. And the same spirit who was working in Peter at Pentecost is the same spirit who is at work in your lives today. Now, that doesn't mean all of you will be called to be preachers, but it does mean that the spirit can and wants to use you to share the gospel with others. As we look at our passage this morning, here's our gospel truth. Christ will return one day, so call upon his name and be saved. Christ will return one day, so call upon his name and be saved. Today's sermon follows two simple headings, the promise and the urgency. The promise and the urgency. And so let's first look at the promise. 
point one, the promise. In Acts 2.13, we read this last week, some of those gathered at Pentecost see all that's taking place in Luke records, uh, but others mocking said they are filled with wine. The disciples are uttering in different tongues, but to these people, to these skeptics, they appear drunk. And so Peter stands up and he answers them in verse 15. He says, for these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And Peter's point is, no, 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 don't get this confused. They're not drunk. It's only 9 a.m. Nobody is drinking this early. You know, this is like 33 AD. Breakfast cocktails weren't a thing. There were no such things as mimosas. Peter's saying, they're not drunk. I have a better explanation. Here's what's happening. So in verse 16, he says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then Peter begins to explain that everything taking place before their very eyes is the result of an Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. And Peter goes on to quote Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. So let's read that quotation in Acts 2, 17 to 18, which says this. And in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now in this beautiful vision of what God would do, we're told that the spirit would one day fall on all flesh. Now all flesh doesn't mean that he will fall on every single person. All flesh means all kinds of people without distinction and without discrimination. And we know that because Peter goes on by in quoting Joel about the three types of people, three evidences, three examples of the spirit falling on all kinds of people. So first we're told the spirit will fall on your sons and your daughters, your sons and your daughters, meaning gender will no longer be a dividing marker. Then we're told young men and old men, meaning age will no longer be a dividing marker. And then third and last male servants and female servants, meaning social class will no longer be a dividing marker. And you see, Joel is prophesying a time when all of these, uh, uh, what was then in the ancient world, important status markers, gender, age, social class, all of these things, they will no longer matter. Because one day the spirit will fall upon those whom he chooses. And the distinctions that we see, the Holy Spirit won't see. Now, it doesn't say it in this passage, but we know from the rest of scripture that when the Holy Spirit falls in a person, he does uh, many works, but primarily among them is he regenerates people's hearts. He brings about the new birth. He gives people faith and repentance. You know, simply put, you cannot receive Christ as Lord and Savior without the Spirit having called you and convicted you and changed you. But who will the Spirit work in? And what we see happening in Joel 2 and Acts 2, what we see happening is the Spirit will fall on anybody, all flesh, all kinds of people. That the Spirit isn't requiring um, and demanding that you meet some prerequisite or that you must qualify for his ministry. You can't prepare yourself for the Holy Spirit coming into you. You know, we prepare in a lot of ways. You prepare your home if you have people over uh, for dinner. You prepare your car by cleaning it when you, you know, are going to pick up somebody on your first date ever. You prepare yourself by, you know, shaving and dressing well in order to go to a job interview. You prepare yourselves in all these kinds of ways, but you cannot prepare yourself to receive the Holy Spirit. 
In fact, it's the Holy Spirit who prepares you in order to receive the gospel. You know, you may think in order to be a Christian that you need to do all of these things first. I must clean up my life, change my behavior, conquer these addictions, slay these vices. Only then can I feel worthy to call upon God to come to church. No, but the Christian life isn't about making yourself an eligible candidate before you're saved. You know, the Spirit comes after all those whom he chooses. You know, nobody has run too far away from the Spirit that he can't reach them. Nobody is running so fast that the Spirit can't catch up to them. Now, why does all this matter? Because the point is that the Spirit, when he falls on people without distinction, means that he can call and convict and change anybody. And I think there's a certain encouragement we can draw out from this. You know, think about that person you've been sharing the gospel with or who weighs deeply on your heart. Your stubborn coworker, your skeptical friend, your argumentative sibling, your dismissive parent, your doubtful child, your suspicious spouse. Don't give up hope on them. The Spirit can work in their lives. And when he does, verse 21 says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, this is actually a theme that we see happening in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is recording for us case after case of how the Spirit fell on all kinds of people. In fact, it's recording very specifically that the Spirit fell on the least likely people who then called upon the name of the Lord and they were saved. And that could be a person in your life too. In fact, that may be some of you this morning. You see, right after Peter preached this sermon, it says 3,000 people were saved. Remember the context. The context where the 3,000 people, the people who were gathered in his presence were, we read in earlier in Acts 2, were devout Jews. And yet somehow the spirit fell upon these Jews and they became Christians. And then later in Acts, you see that there's a traveling Ethiopian eunuch, right? So one, he's a foreigner. Second, uh, his condition of being a eunuch excluded him from entering into the temple. And yet he caught upon the name of the Lord and he was saved. And then we see Tall of Sarsis, a man who persecuted the church. I mean, Saul, who eventually becomes Apostle Paul, but Saul was a terrorist to churches and to Christians. And yet he comes to faith. A few chapters later, a Roman centurion named Cornelius, right? A man's man, a Maximus Decimus Meridius kind of guy. He calls upon the name of the Lord is saved. A few chapters after that, a rich self-made woman named Lydia, you know, an ancient devil wears Prada kind of successful character. She confesses and is baptized. And over and over again in the book of Acts, you see Joel's prophecy coming true. The spirit comes upon people, all kinds of people, and he changes hearts and they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and they are saved. And that means a couple of things. First, it means this. If you don't believe in the gospel, if you are not a Christian, if you've not called upon the name of the Lord, let me tell you, you don't have to first clean yourself up before you come to God. You don't have to get yourself ready and put your life in order. You don't have to make yourself worthy in order to call upon him. You can call upon him today. And if you do in faith, you will be saved. Second, for those of you who have, this means that those in your life who you deeply care for and love, but who don't know the Lord, 
they too can be saved. Don't give up hope on them. You know, during our Tuesday evening prayer meetings, we've been asking uh, for people to share prayer requests. And it's been encouraging the past few weeks, seeing that in that chat box, when people share their prayer requests, many have been sharing that their unbelieving family and friends would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been so encouraging reading that people are burdened to see those in their lives who don't know Christ come to know him. And the reality is that all of us, we have people in our lives who we long to know Jesus. We all have people in our lives who, 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 when we really think about them, our heart breaks because we want to see them come to faith in Christ. But the reality is over time, if you're like me, it's so easy to become cynical, pessimistic, and doubtful that they'll ever believe. Isn't, isn't that what it's like? Right? You, you shared the gospel with somebody and they rejected it. In fact, maybe you've done it multiple times and every time they seem to reject it. In fact, it seems like you're getting more and more annoying. And so then, because you know this person, because you have a history, because you've tried to share gospel hope with them, you know how they're going to respond. You start to lose hope. You know, and I found myself doing this and saying this about family and friends. Maybe you have too. You think, you know, this person, they're, they're just too stubborn to listen to anything I have to say. I don't want to share with anymore. You know, their problem is they're, they're too successful in life. They're too comfortable in life. They, they won't ever sense their need of Christ. Maybe you think, you know, that person, you know, I, I love them, but they're just, they're just so worldly and focused on their career and their friends and their family. You know, they don't ever think about future spiritual things. None of this matters to them. Maybe you've thought, man, this is so pointless. This person, they're just, they're so intellectual. They're so smart and prideful. They're just going to dismiss. They're just going to argue. They're not going to want to believe. And when we are reduced to this kind of sentiment, we end up deciding for the spirit who we think will call upon the name of the Lord. But let's never decide who will and who can't call upon Jesus. Let the spirit decide that, not you. You know, I, I think we need to draw some comfort from the book of Acts. That God's spirit falls upon the most unlikely people. And when the gospel is shared with them by the spirit's prompting and his work in their lives, people call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. And I just want to encourage you, keep this promise at heart. Stay persistent in prayer. Keep having spiritual conversations persevere in pursuing that person. Continue to be hopeful that God's spirit can work a miracle in their lives. After all, he worked a miracle in yours when you called and he came to your rescue. So we have perseverance. The spirit will fall on anybody. And so we pray trusting this promise that those who call upon the name of the Lord, he will save. So first, that's the promise. Here's the second, the urgency the urgency. You know, as we mentioned, Peter quotes the entirety of Joel chapter 2, 28 to 32, except he makes one change. Whereas Joel 2, 28 says this, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter then changes one phrase, and it's very important because Peter says in Acts 2, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Do you see that change, that difference? Peter says, now are the last days. Joel is speaking future. Peter is speaking presently. He's saying, now that the spirit of God has come, we are in the last days. We today are living in the last days. Meaning that we as Christians are people living between two times. At Pentecost, 2,000 years ago, the last days began. And we are living in those last days, but currently we are waiting for, we are anticipating another day to come. The last days have begun, but the day of the Lord will come. The day of Jesus' return, the day of Jesus' final judgment. And that day of the Lord is described in verses 19 and 20, where we read, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. You see, Jesus came once and in his ascension, he gave us the Holy Spirit. That began the last days, but he will come a second time and that will mark the day of the Lord. And on that day of the Lord, all of humanity will stand before him and they will have to give an account and give an answer. On that final day, Philippians 2, 10 to 11 describes it saying this, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Everybody on the day of the Lord will bow their knee before Jesus Christ, except listen, there will be a difference. Some who bow will experience humiliation. They will receive the judgment of God because of their sin. But others who bow will experience honor and they will receive a crown of glory because of their savior. You see, for some, the day of the Lord will be of terror and gloom, but for others, it will be a day of joy and celebration. And the only thing that accounts for the difference It's whether they have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved. Jesus will make the difference. Now, look carefully at how that day is described. Verse 19 shows the terror of the day by describing it with these words, blood, fire, smoke, and darkness. That to some, this day will be a frightful day, one of dread and fear and terror. But then verse 20 describes it in the most interesting way. Peter says, in quoting Joel, the great and magnificent day. And the question is, which will it be? Will it be a day of blood, fire, smoke, and darkness, this terrible, scary, frightful, fearful, dreadful day? Or will it be a great and magnificent day? Well, the answer depends on how you respond to Christ in this life. Those who call on the name of Jesus will celebrate that final day. You see, because Christ bore their sins and cross for them, they will receive a crown. It will be a day of vindication. It will be an entrance into glory. If you call upon the name of the Lord, you don't have to fear the day of the Lord because there will be no judgment or punishment for you. You see, the judgment language of Joel is blood, fire, smoke, darkness, And for those who trust in Jesus as their savior, you've been spared God's judgment because Christ has already taken those things for you. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died in your place. He died taking your judgment. And on the cross in your stead, he took the wrath. He took the punishment of God against your sins so that you wouldn't have to. 
And that's how on that final day, you can come into God's presence and be received in glory. You remember that scene in Luke's first book describing the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke writes in his gospel, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And everyone wonders, why is there darkness? And some say, oh, it's just the cosmos acting up. Well, I think something else is going on because it's a bit strange that in the middle of the day, darkness would enter. Why? Because Luke is showing us symbolically that the judgment of the day of the Lord, the darkness of the day of the Lord is breaking into history and is falling on Christ. That Christ is receiving that future day of judgment reserved for us so that those who trust in Jesus on that final day, we know that God's justice and his wrath will be emptied. It was all already poured out on Jesus. It was satisfied by Christ in our place. And that's why for those who call upon the name of the Lord, the day of the Lord will be a great and magnificent day. For we will enter into his presence and be received in glory. And yet for those who do not call upon the name of the Lord, that future day awaits you pregnant, with dread and terror because God's judgment still awaits you. His righteous wrath is stored up in heaven because nobody has taken it for you. Nobody has undergone it in your place. Nobody has volunteered to satisfy divine justice. And so for those who do not call upon the name of the Lord, this is what is awaiting you. But the great promise that we see in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is that if you call upon the name of Jesus today, you know, with incredible love and grace, he will willingly take that punishment, take that darkness for you. That's good news. And that means there is an urgency, friends. Because we live in between the last days and the day of the Lord. Now, we don't know when the day of the Lord is. It can be any moment. Do you sense the urgency to call on Jesus and be saved? And for those who have called upon Jesus, do you sense the urgency to share about Jesus with somebody else? You know, when I was younger, my parents uh, owned a business and that meant they worked on Saturdays. And so almost every Saturday morning before they left for work, they would leave a list of chores for me to do while they were gone. And then, you know, it's just simple things, uh, vacuuming, doing the dishes, if it was the summer, mowing the lawn. Uh, but of course, as a teenager, that's not how you want to spend your Saturdays. And so I would put off these chores as much as I could. Um, but every Saturday evening before my parents, as they closed up their shop and before they left their store, my mother would call me just to let me know that they were headed home. And that meant I had 35 minutes to get everything done. Her phone call meant the last days were here. And when my father pulled into the driveway, that was the day of the Lord. You see, he was coming back and that created so much urgency and that in those 35 minutes. Because either way, he would come home and I will have done what he asked or I will have done, you know, I will have not done it. 
Either way, I had to answer to him. I was accountable to him. And if I didn't do those things, he asked, if I didn't vacuum, if I didn't do the dishes, if I didn't mow the lawn, then it would certainly be a day of blood, (laughs) fire, smoke, and darkness. But as a kid, if I did those things, then he would open his wallet and give me some allowance and it would be a great and magnificent day. You see, that phone call marked the need for urgency because it meant his return was soon. In the same way, Pentecost means the last days are here and the day of the Lord is on the horizon. But because we don't know when that day is, how much more urgency should fill our hearts and mark our lives? Do you feel the urgency? Do you sense it? Does it weigh on you? You know, for those who are already in Christ, who are secure in him by faith, you enjoy the surety that the final day, the day of the Lord will be great and magnificent. You're set. But how many in your lives are not prepared for that day? How many in your lives have awaiting for them, not the same joy and glory and fanfare and celebration that you know you'll receive, but have awaiting for them a day of terror and dread, blood, darkness, gloom. You see, last week I challenged our congregation to share gospel hope. Uh, And I said, you could do it by sharing a sermon with others and, and then simply praying that God would use it. Now, if you regularly share the gospel, please continue doing what you're doing. Don't let me disrupt. But I imagine that for most of us, we cannot remember the last time that we shared gospel hope. And if that's you, would you at least step up to this challenge? Would you at least share Christ in this way? Would you feel enough urgency that you would share Christ. You know, look at Acts 2. Peter spoke, Peter shared, and then the Spirit used that to cut people to the heart and bring them to faith, and 3,000 souls were saved. It's very interesting that Luke doesn't record that 3,000 people were saved. He says 3,000 souls were saved because what's at stake here is souls. Now, if you have the hope of Christ and you have people in your life who don't have the hope of Christ, then there's urgency. You know, it's precisely our confidence that God saves, which gives us confidence to share. I have confidence that God saves. And so I have confidence that I merely share because after all, who knows how God will use this? You know, it could be that through a simple sharing, a public sharing, that God would use that in his uh, mysterious ways to cut somebody to the heart to call them uh, to, to himself so that they would call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. You have no idea. You know, last week I issued the challenge. A few of you did the challenge and you shared gospel hope. I'm not going to say who, you know who you were. Now you may not know this, but I want to let you know that people did respond to what you shared. Because some of you posted very specific sermons with a little description. You did the whole hashtag. And I looked at our media analytics. And I want to let you know that people went and they listened to that sermon that you shared on our podcast. People responded. You see, you, you have no idea what God can do through your simple sharing. And in fact, the reality is you might never know. You might never know how God will use it, when he will use it, what he will do with it. That's up to the spirit. 
And so we rest in that. We don't know all of these things, but here's what we do know. We know two things. First, we know this. The gospel promise is wonderful. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Here's the second thing we know. That promise, as wonderful as it is, has an expiration date. That we are living in the last days and the day of the Lord is coming. Friends, Jesus sent us his spirit at Pentecost because he wanted us to be powerful in our witness to him. Acts 1.8. And I pray that as the spirit has come upon you, that you then would be exactly that, a powerful witness of Jesus to the world. For you know you called and he came to your rescue. And that promise still remains for the world. May it be known. May you share gospel hope as the Spirit gives you power. Friends, Jesus will return. So call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Let us pray.